You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. Understanding Evil, The Soviet Union and the Sanction of the Victim by Nikos Satyrakopoulos. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for being here and for waking up early for this. So today, we are going to talk about the most significant event in the history of the 20th century. The victory of communism in Russia and the establishment of the Soviet Union, of the first communist state. Because think about it. Without Soviet Union, there wouldn't be a communist China, which is still with us today. There wouldn't have been the Iron Curtain over Eastern Europe from 45 till 1989. There wouldn't be the various violent leftist movements in Latin America. And most importantly, there wouldn't have been the millions and millions of piles of corpses that communists left behind. But even more importantly, perhaps for us, the students of history and the students of ideas, understanding Soviet Union can give us an insight into how evil wins. Ayn Rand makes the radical and controversial point that evil in itself, left on its own device, is impotent. That evil is not as powerful as we think. But then, if evil is impotent, how did the Bolsheviks win? Against all odds, as you will see. How did they get to power? And how did they maintain this power and expanded it towards something that look like world domination. So let's embark in this tragic, but also fascinating tour, and let us find ourselves back in Russia in 1917, early 1917. So the country is in the middle of the First World War, and it is very dispirited, and it is very demoralized. Soldiers have no idea why they're fighting this war, they're ill-equipped, and hunger starts expanding in the urban centers and among the millions of the farmers. The war effort and the country was led by a parochial autocratic regime, the regime of the Tsar, the last Tsar, Nikolaus. And more and more, the regime was losing its appeal among its own supporters, among the army, among the aristocracy. So at some point in February of 1917, the regime collapses under its own weight. It cannot anymore carry the war effort. There's so much discontent among the people, and the regime collapses. The final push for this collapse was given by the revolution of February of 1917, led by elements of the army and a coalition of, today we'd call them socialists, some radical socialists, some more liberal socialists, led by a guy called Alexander Kerensky, and also led by some councils of workers, sailors, and soldiers. What's the Russian word for council? Soviet. So the February Revolution was led by the army and the Soviets. Now notice, up to this point, 
I haven't mentioned to you the Russian communists, the Bolsheviks. Why? Because they were still completely insignificant. If in early 1917, you walked in the streets of Petrograd of, or of any other Russian city, and you asked the passerby, what's your opinion about the Bolsheviks? The answer you'd get was, who? The party created, organized by Lenin as a clandestine group, was tiny. And actually, its contribution to the February Revolution was very small. We're talking about a country of 100 million people. And the core activist cadre of the Bolsheviks was something like 1,000 people. 1,000 in, in, in a country of 100 million. In a country that expands in two continents among the peasants, the Bolsheviks had no more than 500 members. So the question, oh, and also, their leadership was scattered somewhere between Siberia and exile in Western Europe. Lenin, for example, was in Switzerland. So how can it be that this tiny, tiny group, in some months, would claim power? One thing has to do with the political genius when it comes to machinations and, and finding, uh, finding uh, the weak spots of the system of Lenin himself. And the Germans, who were the enemies, the opponents of the Russians, saw this. So Germany said, how do we disintegrate Russia even more? They literally put Lenin in a train and they told him, off you go to Russia. Return there, you're going to do your stuff, this is going to be good for us. But more importantly, more importantly, in more than one way, power was handed to Lenin on a serial plane by the provisional government. First of all, because they completely, completely undermined the Bolsheviks. The idea was, we're all friends here. We're all for the revolution. So at some point in the summer, after Lenin has returned to, to Russia, a general goes to Kerensky, the leader of the provisional government, and tells him, this Lenin guy is up to no good. This Lenin guy has his eyes in toppling your government. And Kerensky says, I have no opponents on the left. We're all on the same team. Where Lenin doesn't get the memo. Another reason why Lenin managed to capture the moment was the fact that although the provisional government had promised that we're going to take Russia outside of the war, we're going to keep Russia away from the war, they re-entered the First World War. So now the Bolsheviks can say, we are the real party of peace. But there's one more important even reason why the weak, the small, and the insignificant Bolsheviks get to power. And this is the fact that Almost the whole country, without realizing it, was working ideologically for the Bolsheviks. What do I mean? Almost everyone in Russia was an anti-capitalist. Among the left and among the right. Almost everyone, among, almost everyone in Russia was a collectivist. Now, there were different kinds of collectivism. Some were racist. He said uh, the collective is the Slavic race. Some were nationalists, others were socialists, but they all agreed in one thing. You have to sacrifice for the collective. This is the ideal. 
And of course, obviously, they were all, almost everyone, anti-liberal. And again, when I say everyone, I mean even the capitalists. It's quite telling that if you go back and see past journals and uh, the periodic, the magazine that the Moscow Stock Exchange had before the revolution, very often you can find caricatures which show the capitalists with the pot belly and the cigar. And this is the magazine of the capitalists themselves. So they themselves feel we are the bad guys here. So their message is, please, we know we are bad, please don't kill us, but we accept that we are the bad guys here. There's this famous fake quote by Lenin which says, the capitalists are going to sell us the rope that we're going to hang them with. And in some ways, the capitalists in Russia did exactly this metaphorically. So, what happens when the Bolsheviks get to power through a coup within the army and within the Soviets in October 1917. By the way, you might imagine this coup as this heroic revolution that masses and masses of people stormed the Winter Palace. Nothing like that happened because there was, again, almost no one to defend the provisional government. They, according to a joke, which might not even be a joke, there were more people injured in the famous Eisenstein movie where the masses are storming the Winter Palace, rather than in the actual storming of the Winter Palace in 1917. But still at that point, the Bolsheviks are weak. They've got power, but they haven't got mass support and mass appeal among the masses. Actually, even after revolution, Lenin can take lonely walks in Petrograd without bodyguards. And you know why Lenin does not need bodyguards? Because no one knows what he looks like. No one knows what he, who he is. The guy is in charge of the revolutionary government, and people don't even know his face. So what follows is a very bloody civil war between the Reds, the Bolsheviks, and the Whites. Now, the Whites is not one thing. The Whites is basically a coalition of warlords most of them horrible people, anti-Semites, violent, who don't even bother to coordinate. Because, again, they don't think that the Bolsheviks is a great danger. So, through the Red Army, which becomes more and more and more powerful, and led by Trotsky, the Bolsheviks win power and establish their domain more and more into Russia. So, within three years, in the early 20s, 21, the Bolsheviks, the communists, now have control on the country. Again, not because they were a force that couldn't be opposed, but because their opponents did not understand how serious this force was. And many good people, or good compared to the historical context, did not understand the threat. So, for example, you can find many military officers of the Tsar joining the Bolsheviks, saying, okay, these, you know, how bad could these guys be? Well, they would find out the hard way. So, what do the Bolsheviks, what do the communists do when they come to power? One thing that you cannot accuse them of is that they are not men of their word. They promise communism, they deliver exactly this, communism. There is no market, of course, there's always a black market, but there is no official market. 
There is no private property allowed, and everything is run by the state. This was the period of the so-called war communism. You've read Atlas Shrugged, I assume, most of you, so you remember the railway unification plan and the 20th century motor company. The country was run in a way that was something between the two. So let's say we have an enterprise. Whatever we produce, we dispose it to a collective pool. And then the central planner decides what is done with this output. And then also the central planner next year gives you resources based on how you did last year. In terms of, if you did well, you don't need more resources. You're doing quite good. If you did not do well, well, we have to bail you out. So don't let anyone tell you, oh, it was not real communism. It doesn't get more real than that. This is from each according to ability to each according to his need. That's exactly what happened. Put differently, the productive bailing out the unproductive. Who was running the economy? People who were proud of the fact that they had no idea about how an economy works. There's one particular example. An un a previously unemployed and probably unemployable guy called Peskovsky, who shows up to Lenin and says, look, at some point in the past, I've studied some economics. And Lenin says, good. Off you go to lead the Central Bank of Russia. <laughs> and again, the Bolsheviks were so proud of this that the guy who has no idea what he's doing is now leading the central bank, that in one of the most famous propaganda films, part of the Maxim trilogy, those of you who are into Soviet cinema, they recreate this scene, of course, with a different protagonist, because later Peskovsky perished in some purges, where he shows up in the bank and he has no idea and he's laughed by the employees. But this was supposed to be good, right? Because we're not here to create, mostly. We're here to destroy. We are here to destroy the established order. And this is also why the Bolsheviks were so proud of creating this runaway inflation. A prominent Bolshevik said, the printing press is the machine gun that we turn against the bourgeoisie. Why? Because if inflation is 1,800%, if you have some money in the bank, now it's useless. So you used to be good, you used to be productive, now we've destroyed you. What is the result of this? Exactly the result that you'd expect. Poverty, destitution, hunger. When I say hunger, I mean famine. I mean hundreds of thousands perishing, eventually millions perishing, and there were even events of cannibalism. This is not anti-Soviet propaganda, this was officially there were reports among the secret police, what are we going to do with cannibalism? So the situation looked dire. The Soviets were losing control. The situation is so dire that the famous Soviet author, Maxim Gorky, the communist firebrand, in July 1921, writes an open letter to the West. And the open letter says, basically, save us. Imagine how much he had to swallow his pride. And also, the leaders of the Russian church, leaders who were being persecuted, so somewhere between 
the Gulag and the execution squad, they also send an open letter to the West saying, we are perishing, save us. Now, what do you think the West did? Did they say, oh, here are our sworn enemies that want to destroy us and who are tyrannizing their population? Tough luck, Bolsheviks. Deal with what you created. We're out. Of course not. The West says, here we are. We are going to help you. So the American Relief Administration, which is a quasi-governmental body of the Congress, took it upon itself that we need to alleviate hunger and famine in the Soviet Union. The victims were already massing up to the millions, so they felt now is the time that we have to save the Soviet Union. And this effort was not, lead, was not led by a leftist. It was led by future President Hoover. So Hoover says, don't worry, Soviets, I'm here. But he faces resistance. Resistance from whom, though? Not from the American public, not from the Congress, but from the Soviets themselves. <laughs> the Soviets play hard. They impose conditions. You say, you want to help us? Yes, but uh, we, we, have, uh, we have some rules. <laughs> and even worse, at the same time, some of the most famous Bolsheviks, like Trotsky and Zinoviev, and in Pravda, day after day, you see articles denouncing the American Relief Administration as a Trojan horse of imperialism. Remember that scene in Atlas Rugged, where Philip Reardon is asking money from Hank. Hank is benevolent and says, sure, take money. And Philip Reardon says, oh yeah, but because you're so despicable, don't wire the money in my account, because I don't want to have anything to do with you. Give me the money in cash. So that's exactly, that's exactly what happened. Now, and if we can go to the next, uh, to the next slide. No. No. Yes. How can we understand this? How can we understand this dynamic that the rulers who are massacring their population and have created a hunger are posing conditions around denouncing their wannabe saviors? Well, Ayn Rand explains it in the sanction of the victims. He says, it is in the nature of altruists and collectivists that the more they need a person or a group, the more they denounce their victims, induce guilt and struggle never to let the victims discover their own importance and acquire self-esteem. This is what the Bolsheviks did to the West. It was basically, you have a duty to help us, and at the same time, you're horrible people. And we're doing you a favor that we are allowing you to save us from famine. So after two weeks of negotiations, the Bolsheviks are persuaded to accept the help. <laughs> For the next three years, from 1921 to 1924, the relief from the West, and mostly from the American Relief Administration, saves millions of lives. There is a point where 10 million people in the, in the Soviet Union daily are fed 
by some type of other type of Western help. What is the gratitude by Soviet Union? Stalin, who was taking more and more power as Lenin's health was declining, institutes surveillance against every Western worker in Soviet Union. And he goes to the American Relief Administration and says, you know what? From now on, you will pay your own travel expenses. And the secret police is constantly harassing Russians, who, uh, Soviets, who are working together with the Relief Administration. And at some point, the Soviets are importing grain, and instead of feeding their population, who are still starving, they are exporting it to other Western countries to import industrial machinery or guns or whatever. So President Harding sees all this and at some point asks Hoover. Remember, Hoover is leading the Relief Administration. He's not president yet. So President Harding, the US president, asks Hoover, what exactly are we doing here? These guys don't look like our friends. And Hoover says, oh, but we will show them how it's done and they will not hate us anymore. We will show them we are good. And we will show them that through our way, you can feed your population and this will change them. They will become better. It reminds me of Dagny throughout Atlas Shrugged where she kind of thinks Alec goes to strike, but then she says, look, these people, the looters, obviously want to live. And I'm going to show them how it's done and they will at least leave me alone, or even, you know, Dagny doesn't care about their appreciation, but the Americans cared about the appreciation of the Soviets. What a naivety and uh, what, a, what a mistake. Again, this is what the sanction of the victim looks like. You have someone denouncing you, and yet you bail them out. You literally save them from starvation. But this was not the only way that the West bailed out Soviet Union. There's an argument to be made that the whole industrialization of Soviet Union was sponsored by the West in two ways. The first way was not known to the West, and it was through a vast network of spies that Stalin planted around the industrial and scientific and, uh, enterprises of the West. And you could say, okay, why do you include this in the speak? The West didn't know it. Except that most of these spies arrived to Soviet Union as, quote, sorry, arrived to the West as, quote, exchange students. And they were welcomed in the ports by committees. So the United States says, of course, we need to have cultural exchange with Soviet Union. We will welcome the brightest. So those of whom the Soviets, quote, exchange students, who were not actual spies, returned to Soviet Union and brought the know-how and, and, and the technical knowledge. Because as you can imagine, there was a massive brain drain in Soviet Union. Because if you were a specialist, you were seen under suspicion. Or if you managed to, you had escaped. So either these people returned to Soviet Union and bring IP, what today we call IP information, and uh, knowledge, or they stay in the West and they become spies. Do you know how the Soviet Union got the secret for the nuclear bomb already from 1945? Through a quote exchange student 
from the 30s who stayed in the United States, who got involved with the MIT, and he ended up being involved with the team that created the nuclear bomb. But beyond the spies, the West also gave loans and direct investments to Soviet Union. At the time where Soviet Union needed them more desperately. So I can name names like AEG, Siemens, that had investments in Soviet Union, particularly around 1929, because it was the time of the financial crisis in the West, so they thought, oh, there's an opportunity here, there's an investment opportunity. So Henry Ford, for example, in 1929, made a major investment in Nizhny Novgorod, a huge factory. And this factory becomes the basis for the Soviet vehicle industry, which later becomes the basis for the Soviet military vehicle technology. Do you know the famous tanks, the T-series, the T-34, the T-44? Those of you who are into military affairs, you've probably seen them. Do you know how the Soviets created this tank? The progenitor of this tank was literally bought by an American, by an engineer by the name of Walter Christie. But because they were not allowed to directly import uh, tanks from the United States, they took the tank, they took out the cannon, and they camouflaged it to a tractor. So it was, we're doing here legitimate trade with tractors and stuff. So this is how they imported the tank, which kicked off the tank industry, which then created the formidable T-34 and T-44. Now notice that all these loans and all these investments are taking place at a time when the Soviet Union is openly, openly undermining the West. It is the heroic period of the Communist International. It is the heroic period of the Comintern, which means once every year, all the communist parties of the world are gathering in Moscow and they are planning how to undermine and how to topple their governments in the West. And this is open, this is not like a secret. And all these parties are funded by Soviet Union with money or with guns. While all this is happening, the West considers it normal to continue their relationships with Soviet Union. And you would say, okay, but we are selfish, right? So if you're gonna make money in Soviet Union, why not go to Soviet Union? Well, the vast majority of the companies who went there regretted it. Because when you deal with Soviet Union, you deal with someone who can change the rules of your contract just like that, who can change your tax regime just like that, who is basically going to steal all your intellectual property lives just like that, and even worse, someone who is going to harass and sometimes even arrest your personnel and accuse them of being spies, saboteurs, and things like that. So this is obviously a trend. Whenever something goes wrong in the Soviet Union, who is to blame? Saboteurs and spies. Because otherwise, why would the system not work? So within the Soviet Union, so we said there are two main reasons why the Soviet Union does not completely collapse. Three reasons. One, direct charity from the West. 
saving millions from starvation for three years. Then loans and investments by the West. But there's a third reason. And the third reason is within the Soviet Union. And it is the most productive, the most ingenious people being allowed to go back to their jobs. This was the period known as the new economic policy, the NEP period. Again, Lenin is very, very, very clever. When he sees the collapse, he says, okay, I will allow, so let's say you had the factory, we took your factory, and you're about to get in the train for the Gulag. We're gonna allow you to have a small shop. You could say that something is like that happened with Ayn Rand's father, that at some point during the new economic policy, he was allowed to operate. So the deal was, we're not gonna kill you, we're gonna allow you to operate, obviously, we're gonna take away like 98% of what you produce, but there's one thing you know how to do to produce, we're gonna let you do it. And of course, these people, because they don't know what else to do, and this is how they operate, go back to work, and somehow manage to restore some form of eros, some form of functioning economy. By functioning economy, I mean not massive starvation. And even in the countryside, the most productive farmers, the so-called kulaks, are allowed to have a piece of land and produce their own land. During all this, you, the producer who works, are constantly considered as the enemy by the regime. You see everywhere caricatures pointing you as a parasite, and there's open discrimination against you. You saw this also in With the Living. So, if you're part of the proletariat, you can have access to university. If you're part of the middle class, which is keeping the economy alive during new economic policy, there's an official class apartheid against you. And towards the end of the 80s, Stalin decides, okay, now we don't need you anymore. So now we're going to properly persecute you as the class enemy you are. You put the country back in its feet, but now we don't need you anymore. Particularly in the countryside, this is the persecution of the kulaks, which is one of the worst events of mass violence in history, creating millions of victims, and also creating a new famine. You've probably heard of the Ukrainian famine. It would be more accurate to say a Soviet famine because it wasn't only in Ukraine. So notice here what the West did. In the early 20s, they said, we cannot let the famine happen. We need to, sell, to help the Soviets. They helped the Soviets thinking that they're helping the victims. So what actually happens is that the regime stays into power. And then 10 years later, not even 10, eight years later, the regime brings upon its population an even worse famine. Because the famine of 1930 is worse than the famine of 1920. So if someone says, oh yeah, but what about the lives saved by the charity of the West? Then you should say, okay, but what about the millions of who perished in the 30s? And they wouldn't have perished if the Soviet regime had collapsed in the early, in the early 20s. So, time and again, we see the same motto. The able and the productive bailing out the unproductive, bailing out the ones who hate them and the ones who openly 
persecute them. So, reaching to a conclusion. There's a quote by a historian that keeps, keeps coming back to my head. The historian is called Maitland, and the quote goes something like, what now lies in the past once lay in the future? What now lies in the past once lay in the future? We can see the victory of communism in Russia in retrospect and believe that it was a force that it couldn't be stopped, that it was such a massive movement led by so such geniuses that no one could do anything to stop it. And yet we saw that this is not the case. It was a movement who was bailed out time and again, either due to its opponents undermining it and basically saying, okay, they don't really mean it. They're not going to do these things, right? Or by the West saving Soviet Union or tragically the most productive people within the Soviet Union actually putting their productive mind into work and then paying it for it dearly. But the story does not stop there. There is a slight excuse, let's say. Someone could say, look, we didn't really know what the Soviet Union was. But after the 30s and after the Ukrainian famine and after the period of the Great Purges, now we know who these people are. These people are killers and we're never going to have anything to do with them. No. Second World War, massive assistance to the, by the West to Soviet Union. But forget Second World War. You could say, okay, this was a difficult decision, otherwise the Nazis might have won, although I know one disagreed with this. After the war, and while the Soviet Union has occupied half of Europe, and while Soviet Union imperialistically has his eyes on China and on the Far East, the West is begging Stalin to become part of the United Nations. Because how can we have United Nations without the Soviet Union? Even worse, 1948, the Cold War is already started, but Soviet Union needs to be part of the Marshall Plan. So the West goes to Stalin and his satellites and says, please take our money. We're rebuilding Europe. We don't want you to, to be left out. But this time, Stalin really means it when he plays hard, and he doesn't take the money. Now, the question is why? Why is it that the West never learns? Why is it that the West keeps supporting those who openly want to destroy it? And I would say the answer does not lie, I don't know, in geopolitics. It does not lie in policy papers. It lies in the Bible. If we can go to the next slide. So, in a verse we read, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. I think this is what explains the attitude of the West to Soviet Union. How do I know it? I know it because, A, I see the West still having this attitude to its enemies, but also 
Because if you see the people in the West who, in retrospect, evaluate the help that the West provided to the Soviet Union, they say, the motto is, and we will do it again. I was reading a book written relatively recently about uh, the Western help to Soviet Union, and the last page says, this is who we are. Someone is in danger, we're there to help them. And any time in the future that this happens again, we will be there for them as well. We will be there for them again. So this is literally the sanction of the victim, saying, we helped you, you hate us, you tried to destroy us, you failed, but next time you try, we are here. We are here to help you. So this is altruism in operation. This is altruism in practice. So unfortunately, bad ideas have bad consequences. Bad morality has bad consequences. And these consequences could be the suffering and the perishing of millions of people, some of whom tragically assisted their own destroyers. Thank you. Sorry. Thank you for the talk. Thank you. Um, being from an ex-USSR country, Lithuania, uh, we have these kinds of discussions about current Russia, and we feel that current Russia is an amalgamation of both stardom of Russia and the uh, USSR. So, uh, my question more has to do with uh, imaginative realm. What if the whites had won the war, mm. the civil war? How would Russia look like right now? Okay, that's a very intriguing question. First of all, there were so many times, so when you read the history of the Bolsheviks, there are so many times that you are in a page and you say, okay, in next page they will lose. Okay, we kind of know they didn't because we are in 2022, but you say th there's no chance they survived this. There is one point that, the that some key Bolsheviks are waiting in their office literally to be arrested after the revolution. It's like, okay, we screwed up so bad, now they're coming for us. And because no one is coming for them, they decide to take the guns and they to arrest their opponents. So when you say what would have happened if the whites had won, the thing is there was no such a thing as whites. There were different generals in different parts of the country. Let me reverse the question. Could it be that any other alternative history in, in Russia would lead to this monumental bloodshed that was the history of communism in Soviet in the 20th century? I would say no. Having said that, many of the whites were so bad that many well-meaning people says, okay, if it's these brutes, I will go with the Bolsheviks. Mm -hmm. Again, we're talking about anti-Semites, people doing pogroms, people doing mass violence. So you're not going to hear any idealization of the whites from me. So again, mostly brutes, warlords, bad people. And again, the tragic is, what do you do if you're stuck in the middle? And we could even think about it with lower stakes politically today. 
whites on the one side, the reds on the other side, what do I do? I would say, run for your life. But it's, it's a difficult question. So, and it's not impossible that the whites would have won. During the Civil War, Kiev changed its hands 19 times. So it was such an open process, like such an, the outcome was so, so open. But there was no time where one particular side of the whites could have won. At some point, Germany wants to re-attack to force the, the Russia to go back to the war. At some point, the West wants to attack. So it only needs some like this to take down the Bolsheviks. But no one did it, so who knows what would have happened. Thank you very much. Thanks. Intriguing we have a question, question from the online audience. Yes. Uh, and it's somewhat related to the last question. Do you think the West should have helped the whites in the Russian uh, Civil War? Oh. As bad as the whites were, the Reds were worse. In Finland, the whites won against the Reds, and Finland became a great democracy, as Russia is still an um, autocracy. So, talking about the West messing things up. So, the West managed to do something which is very, very difficult to do. They helped the whites, and by helping the whites, ended up helping the Bolsheviks. How did this happen? The West helped the whites for one reason not to defeat the Bolsheviks, but to make sure that Russia will return to the war, that Russia will return to the war and fight the Germans. So the Bolsheviks then turned to the population and said, look, the imperialists not only want to destroy the revolution, not only support these brutes, but they want to send you back to the slaughterhouse of World War I. So I don't know how a proper intervention against the Bolsheviks would look like, probably again it would defeat them, because it was so easy to defeat, because the Bolsheviks were so weak. But that's not what the West did. It was half-heartedly, and it ended up uh, supporting, it was actually ending up giving more legitimacy to the Bolshevik slogans. Thanks for the question. Thank you for the uh, good talk. Uh, was there any uh, serious intellectual opposition in the West against first communist ideology, Marxism at that time, I mean in early 20s? And uh, did this opposition try to uh, oppose uh, the bailing out of, of, of the Soviets by the West, by America and Western uh, Europe? Well, if it did so, it did a very bad job. Because, again, this help happens under a conservative president and under a conservative future president, Hoover. So what was the most serious political opposition to communism? Unfortunately, it was fascism. So I, in my alternative history, I wouldn't want to say without communism you wouldn't have fascism, but there is an argument to be made that fascism mostly rose as a reply to communism. So no, in terms of serious intellectual opposition to communism, there was not, uh, it wasn't there. Remember, we're talking about the time of the New Deal in the 30s. So it was, statism was the game in town. We have many very prestigious Western personalities and journalists going to Soviet Union and saying there's a serious effort here. Even worse, Soviet of, uh, Western officials going to the Soviet Union and saying, well, I don't see much problem here. 
when the, when the, when the trials, the, the sole trials were happening in the 30s, which is one of the most unbelievable to understand and tragic events of the 20th century, almost everyone, even within Russia, even within Soviet Union, soon realized that this is a show, that this is, a, this is something which is completely made up. Like all the heroes of the revolution suddenly are German spies. There is one person in Moscow who believes everything that he sees in the trials. Do you know who that person is? The American ambassador. <laughs> he writes in his memoirs and he sends back like, how weird it is, so many spies. Who would have expected it? And then when they said, but are the trials okay? They says, yes, these people have actually accepted the accusation. Of course, under brutal torture and after threat to their wives. So whatever Stalin is giving him, the American ambassador is eating from his hand. So there is no serious opposition to communism at that time, unfortunately, at least in a massive scale. Uh, what do you think of imitation of uh, the Soviet dictatorship in the West so that it becomes the policy of the United States, among others, um, that dictatorships win and even in places where we are fighting a war, either a warm war or a cold war against the communists, as you know from the history of Greece, mm -hmm. as we also know from Korea, from Vietnam, what does the United States do? install a dictator who will do what dictators do, what we know from the Soviets dictators will do because people in charge of American policy believe that dictatorship wins. Right, that's a, that's a very good question. So how does communism become big in the third world in developing countries? mostly, but also in some countries in Europe, Greece, Yugoslavia, Italy, by presenting itself as a force of resistance against tyranny, as a form of resistance against fascism, or, as you said in the case of Vietnam, as a national liberation front. So the Americans, quite often by supporting horrible regimes and dictatorships, actually managed to let's put it mildly, not win as many hearts and minds. Now, the question is, what else could they have done? Or should they even do anything? Does America have anything? What business does America have in Vietnam? We could enter the game which dictatorship was worse. I would say in most cases, communist dictatorships would win in terms of actually being worse. But Yes, the fact that the West supported many completely corrupt regimes and murderous and barbarous regimes in the name of anti-communism actually boosted communism, particularly in the developing world. Because these people, they hadn't read Marx, they hadn't read Lenin, their idea was, we are ruled by some horrible people, and here are some other people waving a red whatever, who are against the bad people. So no disagreement in terms of mistakes in U.S. foreign policy, actually uh, boosting, boosting the aura 
and the moral status of Soviet Union at the time when it, have, it should have been completely collapsed, mostly 50s and 60s. Thank you, Nikos. Thank you. I'm, I'm curious about if you know what Calvin Coolidge's attitude was. When Harding died in office in 1923, Coolidge became president. It was another six years before Hoover became president. What was Coolidge's attitude? So it's difficult to tell because this period coincides with the end of the, of the help from the United States. So the help ends in 24 because the famine was uh, done. So we didn't have time to see him, what he would do. So the help that went in 24 is mostly, let's say, a leftover or a follow-up from the help that was given under, Harding, uh, under Harding's years. So that's an interesting hypothetical question. But again, this help had the sanction of the Congress. So I'm not sure that merely a change in president would change something like that. So it's not that it was a super controversial policy. The idea that, because the message was, we are helping starving children. And this is perfectly true. Millions of children did not die because of the assistance of the West. The question is, do you actually help children or do you help the regime survive? Or actually, let's be honest, you do both. So it's not easy question, particularly to people who lack the philosophical, let's say, context on understanding these issues. Thanks. Nikos, you're an amazing presenter. Thank you very much Thank for that. you very it was much. Terrific. Thanks a lot. Thank you. You used a, a, an adjective to refer to the American government, and you referred to it as naive, not perverse, not dumb, just naive, childish. And that called my attention because just a month ago or thereabouts, I was sitting one-on-one -on -one with the Subsecretary of Defense of the United States under the uh, previous administration. Uh, he's a foreigner in origin, and he referred to the American government also as very naive, not perverse, not guided by the wrong philosophy, simply childish-like. Would you agree on that? Okay, that's a, that's a difficult question. So, and let me push it a step further. If you are naive, does it release you from the moral responsibility? So, for example, I do know that the U.S. ambassador in Moscow who believed that the trials were true was naive because he was saying these things literally to himself. It's not the official report, it was his diary. Today I attended the trials and to all these guilty people. Now, of course you have the moral responsibility that when you deal with a regime of killers, you have to look harder, you have to ask more questions. When you see suddenly, imagine the equivalent of in uh, 1802, 85% uh, of the founding fathers being executed as spies of the king. You have to ask yourself some questions, like, could something be going on there? So I accept, I accept this point that it's not only naivety, there, you, you need to have, you need to bear the responsibility that you should have done better as a policymaker, as a human, as a human being. So I don't think that it was a concise saying that, uh, you know, we know that these people are horrible and we're going to help them. Most people try to rationalize it, to say, 
we're not helping the Soviets, we're helping the children. Or, okay, maybe they're not so bad. Or, okay, the early Bolsheviks were bad, but Stalin looks like a, like a serious guy. So they tried to find ways to relieve themselves from the moral responsibility of what they were doing. And of course, there was also the category of people who were outright guilty, like all these uh, uh, journalists of the New York Times, for example, who in the 30s go to Soviet Union and say, all this is so great, or who interview Stalin as if they're dealing with a respected statesman. So we've got the naive, we've got the philosophically flawed, we've got the openly uh, philosophically embracing Soviet Union. The question is, what is the difference in the moral responsibility between these three groups? I'm not the most uh, well-equipped person to answer this question, but this would be a great question for our philosophers. Thank you. You, you mentioned the uh, failure of opposition outside the United States, which re uh, regimes or dictators that were supported. Uh, there was also uh, there was Harding's uh, reaction, and then there was movements uh, against communism in the United States. Chaplin was thrown out. Um, then the, in the 50s, there was the uh, House of American Activities and the anti-communists. But there is ineptitude, it seems, on both sides, outside and inside, and a failure of uh, really good ideas of, that would uh, be able to... In fact, the reaction against that is now that the people who were anti-communist are seen as, as uh, evil now, and there's a whole thing about how bad the uh, House of American Activities was, and there just seems to be a failure of being able to rise to ideas in opposing uh, the ideas of uh, the Soviets and communism. Right. So, raised as a leftist, I, would, I was taught to view the McCarthy years and the, the anti-American committee as you know, ultimate evils. It's important, though, to remember what's the context. The context is, we're in the middle of the Cold War, Soviet Union has a nuclear bomb, and we're at the time that the United States have realized that, according to different reliable sources, Something like 90% of, of Soviet technology comes is stolen from the West, one way or the other. So the idea is we need to do something. We need to do something at least for the spies that we have here. The place is pested with spies. So these were efforts to, to address this. It does make sense that in a, in a rights-respecting society, you say, look, if you have people who help the enemy, this goes beyond freedom of speech. No one was persecuted for being a communist. There was a communist party. No one was being thrown in prison for being a communist in terms of I have these ideals. Or I'm not an expert in this period, but that was not mainly what was happening. Now, I know there are some people in the wider periphery of the movement who would consider McCarthy uh, a hero. This is a topic I haven't, uh, I haven't studied it too well, so I cannot give an opinion on McCarthy. The opinion I can give you is that something definitely had to be done with this openly stealing of uh, trade secrets, war secrets, military secrets from the Soviets. And for example, with the Rosenberg couple, which was executed, turns out they were spies. So 
you could say things should have, done, should have been done earlier. And again, a good start would be not openly inviting exchange students from Soviet Union and putting them at MIT and at Cambridge. But it seems that also this opposition had no ideas that would counter and yeah. solidify their actions. Yeah, so it was a shallow anti-communism on the level of these are the enemy, they're atheists. So quite often back in the day, you'd hear the term atheist communist, so as if this was like the big deal. So yes, McCarthyism was not a proper ideological opposition to communism, no question about that. Thanks. You talked about how the uh, exchange students would come to the United States and then send information back to Russia and, or Soviet Union and be helping the Soviet Union. Why were the exchange students doing that? Because you said a lot of them weren't spies, right? They were just... Oh, let me, let me correct myself. All of them were some kind of spies. In terms of they were first trained in Soviet Union that you're going to go there and you go there on a mission. Best case, best case, the mission is to go there and get trained in these particular technologies and come back and apply them here. So it wasn't like brightly minded independent student who says, oh, I'm going to do an application and go there for a semester. Oh, okay. Oh, okay, I misunderstood then. Um, no, you're right. I didn't, I didn't clarify this. But some of them were the particular idea was you're going to stay there as a spy. But you didn't know who would be who. So, for example, you might go to the, Soviet, to the United States and get as your dissertation supervisor someone who, back in Moscow, they would say, you might get us closer to a super weapon, for example. You stay there. Or the guy behind might get a good training in a factory company, but might not have great social skills. So it's like, okay, probably this is as good as it gets. You come back and you put the technology into action. So you would go not knowing whether you're going to stay there when you, or whether you'd come back. But you would go with this possibility being open. So everyone who would get in these boats that would go to the United States, they knew that they might end up as spies staying in the in the, Soviet, in the United States. Oh, okay, and did these exchange students think, were they not necessarily trying to destroy the United States from inside, but thinking they would take the knowledge that they gained, bring it back to Russia and improve the Soviet Union? Some of them, yes, but when a significant number of them were literally NKVD trained, it's very difficult to think that they went there just to become better engineers. Although I'm sure, you know, to, to be sent to the to United States means that they see something into you, that you have some level of mind. So I wouldn't completely exclude that some people became good. If you don't become good, how do you end up in the nuclear bomb team and in the Manhattan Project? So it's a combination of two. And some of them, though, were devoted communists. So till the end of their life, they would consider my biggest pride was that I stole this secret from the West, and I put it in the, I put it in the hands of, uh, of Soviet Union. So I have very little sympathy for these exchange students, particularly those who were openly NKVD, NKVD agents. And also, very little sympathy for the people who would go to the port with signs like, welcome, and uh, how, can we, how can we accommodate it? I see we're out of time, so thank a big you. thank you for being here. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. 
can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.